We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's um, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And if you were just listening to some of that, that was Noam Chomsky, Chomsky early on in there, where he said there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and people don't feel they can do very much. Can we do very much? Do we need to take extreme actions, uh, make spectacular uh, movements on the streets to gather attention for what really is going on? Certainly corruption, money in politics is a huge, huge part of every single problem that we in America face. Thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Bert Cohen here. Every American knows what April 15th is, right? It's tax day. But for our guest today, Doug Hughes, April 15th, 2015, was somewhat unique, shall we say. That was the day this 61-year-old postal worker piloted a one-person gyrocopter and traveled through restricted airspace to land on the lawn of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Of course, the risk of getting shot down was quite real. He is going to go on trial for something or other, but before he goes on trial, he's got a new, perhaps similarly out-there idea, which we're going to talk about today. Though not a one person, not a one person listening to this show would ever conceive of doing what you did, Doug, never mind actually doing it, what did you do? Why did you do it? Tell us, please, about your tax day action, Doug Hughes. Hi. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm not sure which question to answer first. Um, what, what, did, did, what I did yes. was deliver uh, 535 letters to Congress, okay? Um, these two-page letters pretty much threw down the gauntlet on Congress on the issue of corruption. But the purpose of my flight was to let Americans know that there are options and there are solutions that are out there and that we can do something about the problem, essentially build a wall of separation between big money and government so that this government works for the people rather than special interests. Well, that, that's a tall order. So you had 535 letters. There happened to be 535 members of Congress. How did you come up with this idea of taking the gyrocopter? I asked, did you have the gyrocopter before? How did how did this occur to you? And and um, I I did not have the gyrocopter before, 
uh, I got the gyro and I learned to fly for the one one purpose of the one flight. Uh-huh. Okay. I have told people who ask me about what's going to happen to the gyro that, as far as I'm concerned, it was a disposable item. Uh-huh. Okay. The idea was for me to fly it that one time, and I did. I'd love to have it back. I love flying. Hmm. But the purpose of learning to fly was for the one flight. That must um, it looked to me a little scary, quite frankly. You know, just that one-person thing. I don't know how much it weighs. Looks like not very much, and you're just out there with with no protection. Plus, you were you knew you were flying into restricted airspace, right? Yeah, but I sent word ahead, and I had been vetted by the Secret Service, although that wasn't exactly part of my plan. Uh, a year before, um, somebody informed on me. And so the Secret Service showed up at my door at 1 o'clock in the morning asking me if, if I had a, a gyro, whatchamacallit, yeah. and whether or not I was planning on flying to Washington, D.C. So um, I knew that the Secret Service had a file on me, and I was pretty sure that they had determined I was nonviolent. That's good. So when I flew, I flew from Gettysburg, over an hour away in order to give the authorities time to read my email, pull up the file, and determine that I was nonviolent. And I was hopeful that with that on my side, they would decide not to shoot me down. If I had just suddenly popped up on the radar screens and they didn't know who I was, uh, I was pretty sure that they would shoot me down. Hmm. <laughs> well, that's good that you did the, uh, the preparation for it. I must say, how... Did you come up with the idea? Were you working with any uh, groups? And, and well, first of all, how did, how did that happen? How did you come up with the idea? Well, the idea came out of a comment that a friend of mine made. Um, Mike Shanahan and I had been working on analyzing the problem in Washington, and we came up with money and politics as being what somebody has called the cancer that's the root of all other cancers. Um, and that's, that's a pretty good description. The, the yeah. problem of money in politics is what's keeping us from making progress on energy. It's what's keeping us from making progress on investing in our own infrastructure. It's what's keeping us from making progress on education, on all of the prisons, I mean, there are so many issues. If, if you get away from something that's not a hot-button wedge issue, okay, right. if there's money involved, the reason we're not addressing it is because of money in politics. And if you fix that problem, then all these other things become solvable. Yeah, it's, um, it's so clearly true that... Uh, that you know, the top corporate interests, the, the people who pay all those lobbyists, and I, I don't know how many lobbyists there are, but there's a lot more lobbyists than there are members of Congress. But it, it seems like they're acting, especially since the Citizens United decision and the follow-up McCutcheon decision, they just see government as their wholly owned subsidiary. And that's... Yes. That's just... And, and, go ahead. and that's, what it's, that's what it's becoming, and... It's still, and at this point, it's still in our power to reverse that. Now, the, the idea, to go, to go back to answering your question, sure. which I didn't, um, my friend who's a mailman 
said that what we ought to do is send a certified letter to every member of Congress enumerating our demands and what it is they need to be doing. And I said, Mike, we don't need to send a certified letter to every member of Congress. We need to send a certified letter to every voter in the country because Uh the people in Congress know the problem and they fully intend to continue with what they're doing. But it was out of that discussion and idea of sending a letter to every member of Congress and sending the message to every voter in the country, it was out of that that the idea came, okay, that if I could deliver a letter to Congress in such a spectacular way that the media had to get involved and follow it, then I could deliver the message to the American people. I don't think anybody in Congress has changed their mind because of my flight. But I know that a lot of voters have changed their minds because of my flight. Interesting. And spectacle has always, always had a place in making political change. Street theater, uh, putting flowers in the barrel of guns made a statement. There's just throughout, uh, over, you know, well over 100 years, there have been actions of spectacle. The uh, the Dadaists knew that around the turn of the last century. And after that, the uh, uh, Surrealist International uh, put it uh, together there to have street festivals to make a statement that people could understand even without words. Do you think the the message got across? I mean, the spectacle of uh, flying a gyrocopter onto Capitol grounds, that's what people saw. Do you think it was effective in, in communicating to the wider public that what, what your concerns are? Was it effective, do you think? Well, okay, I'm, I'm glad we're going to have a little bit of time to talk because I can tell stories, which I don't usually do when I'm crowded for time. Um, my dad was a high school teacher, and uh, this is back in the 60s in California. My dad happened to be a conservative, and in California, six, in the 60s, the education industry was owned by liberals. So he was asked by some fellow teachers what he thought the most valuable teaching aid was. And uh, he said, a baseball bat. Oh. And the other teachers like freaked out on him and said, you can't teach with a baseball bat. You can't hit, hit the students. You can't even threaten the students, Mr. Hughes. Are you crazy? You can't teach with a baseball bat. My dad says, well, no, I don't teach with a baseball bat. That's just to get their attention. Okay. Uh-huh. My dad never had a baseball bat in the classroom, uh-huh. but his point was, was to the other educators, and they didn't get it, is that you have to get the students' attention to teach them. Yes. And all those other gizmos or um, things that the teachers were, you know, what's the most valuable teaching aid? The most valuable teaching aid is getting their attention. Yes. Then you can teach them. Until you've got their attention, it doesn't matter what tricks, buzzers, and whistles you use, they're not going to learn anything. My gyro was a flying baseball bat. Mm. I got everybody's attention. Yes, you did. Now, that doesn't teach them anything. It just gets their attention. Now, what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of years is trying to capitalize on getting their attention. And I'm going to try and teach people what it is we can do and how it is we go about solving this problem. The flight alone won't 
have moved the ball very far. But I've got, I've got the opportunity and I've got the credentials to talk to people. They're willing to listen to me the way you are. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and yeah, you need to be working with and promoting the groups that are out there who have solutions that people haven't previously heard about. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's so true, grabbing the attention, especially these days when there's just, you know, every millisecond of our waking hours is somebody's trying to grab our attention. And to, to bust through that is extremely difficult. And you certainly did get people's attention. And I misspoke earlier. It wasn't the Surrealist International. It was the Situationalist International, if you happen to be Googling for that. And if you just tuned in, this is Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm Bert Cohen. Our guest today is Doug Hughes, the uh, pilot of the gyrocopter, who uh, is working on communicating the message that we have a serious corruption problem here. Our government has been really taken over by powerful special interests and it's all about it's all about money so it, it seemed to me that you know watching the mainstream media I'll play a little devil's advocate here all anyone knew about this event april 15th with the gyrocopter was the craziness of what you did the action itself and what it said about security at the capitol in the face of the media focus entirely on the security breach was the message communicated, or do you feel like there is still a lot more work to do after, as you say, the baseball bat was brought out and you got the attention? So what, what happens now? What happens to make the, uh, the message really get communicated more than it has been? Well, the idea is, I, I was told by somebody with uh, Wolfpack, um, and that's a group headed by Sink Ungar. Um, They're trying to do an Article 5 convention to do a constitutional amendment. But one of the leaders of that group says that when they go out to talk to people and they're trying to introduce their idea, she told me that people go, oh, you're like that Doug Hughes guy. Okay? So the message did get through, and the, the reception that, that people who were in the movement are getting because of my flight is, oh, yeah, we know kind of what this is about, okay? And they're, they're receptive and they're prepared to listen to ideas and solutions where previously they were less willing to get enrolled in this revolution. I have always felt at a gut level that fixing the government the way we need to do it is impossible. But my flight was impossible. Yeah. So if people see that what I did was something they couldn't have believed could be done, then they're going to see fixing our government so that it works for us is also something that can be done. Interesting. I am reminded of one of my favorite lines in politics through the years during the May 1968 uh, student worker uprising all across France. There was some graffiti that said, be realistic, demand the impossible. It sounds like you were along those lines. Well, I'm, I'm sure when you landed on the Capitol lawn to deliver the mail, uh, they didn't probably have a brass band welcoming you and, and thanking you for doing that. Have you been charged with anything, any kind of crime? And what's the, situ- what's the legal situation? Um, 
I have been charged with two felonies, which um, could carry up to six years in prison, three years for one, three years for the second. Uh And those felonies are related to registration and licensing of the vehicle. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I have been charged with four misdemeanors. Three of them are repeat violations, but I flew through three different zones. Uh Therefore, they've charged me over and over, and then a third time with the same crime for flying through three separate uh, restricted zones. Okay. And then I've been charged with one misdemeanor, which is basically impersonating a mailman. Huh. I thought you were a mailman. Yeah, that's (laughs) going to be my defense. Um, the, um, the two felonies have to do with the government claims that my vehicle was over 254 pounds, and therefore I, I was required to apply for an N number, okay? Now, I was flying the vehicle as an ultralight, mm-hmm. and, uh, you don't need registration or a pilot's license to fly an ultralight vehicle. Hmm. Now, whether the vehicle was was or was not an ultralight is something that we're going to argue in court. But the basic problem and what my lawyer has found out is that nobody ever gets charged with what I was charged with. Hmm. Um, what happens on uh, with the FAA with vehicle registration problems is if a plane is overweight, you could get fined and you will be required to either bring the weight down or register the plane if it is in violation. But nobody gets charged with what I, what I was charged with. Yeah, first time for everything. What I did. They just needed, they were, for lack of a better word, uh, they were unhappy. <laughs> and they wanted to charge me with a felony, so they found a statute that was a felony to charge with. Now, the second felony follows the first one. They're saying if you were required to have an N number, then you're also required to have a pilot's license. So they tack on another three uh, years uh-huh. for not having a pilot's license if they can prove that the plane was over 254 pounds. It's bureaucratic horse manure, <laughs> okay? They're just out to get me, and they're trying to find charges that they think they can make stick. And and who is they? Is it the federal government bringing these charges? Yeah, yeah. I'm I am charged in, in federal court. Okay, and um, the um, the case will be heard um, probably sometime this summer, or possibly into the fall. Uh-huh. Um, before a jury. Uh-huh. The, uh huh. Oh, the the wow. prosecution is not budging and wanting me to do hard time. Hmm. And. Um, it looks like somebody higher up has decided that, and again, this is just my opinion, and, and sure. everybody's entitled to their own, oh, yeah. but historically in Washington, D.C., protests are a part of the scenery. They happen all the time in Washington, D.C. Of course. And if there is no property damage and no injury and no intent to do either one, they will typically not require jail time. In my situation, they have decided that my stunt was either because it was flamboyant or spectacular or possibly because it was effective, 
they want to lock me up as a, as a deterrent mm-hmm. to keep anybody else from doing any protests along my lines that will be effective in rallying opposition to the corruption. Yeah, they don't want opposition to the corruption. That is for sure, for sure. They, it's a sweet little system they have going on down there. Uh, you know, people, as as has been pointed out, people become members of Congress and get paid you know, decently, have a nice staff and stuff like that. But then afterwards, they make a lot of money when they become lobbyists. And it's, it's, I, I wonder how many uh, people may actually run for Congress in order to set themselves up to make a lot of money afterwards. And that's, you know, that's just not the way the system is supposed to work. Well, getting back to the, to the trial here, you know, oftentimes in history— Trials have been great political theater. I think, of course, of the uh, trial of Chicago 8 back in 1969, where they really made their points. Uh, You know, defendants can oftentimes make the case in court better than through any other platform. Do you expect that to be the case when you go on trial for breaching security, or have they figured out that, oh, yeah, we don't want to give them the platform at the trial? What, what, what do, do you expect to be able to make uh, the case when you go I, on trial? I, I would like, if I had it to do, I would argue this uh, as a First Amendment case. Okay. Now, it won't be, but, but hear me out. Everything that I did was to ex- express an idea. And the First Amendment covers ideas. That's why it's mm. not just verbal speech, it's not just printed speech, but it has to do with expressions, which is why, and I don't agree with doing this, but the Supreme Court did decide burning the flag is free speech. It is. Okay. Mm-hmm. My flight was entirely about expressing an idea, and it actually should be something I could defend on, on First Amendment grounds. Um, that that won't happen. But I I would say that even as recently as a few years ago, the, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that money is speech. You're right. And as far as I'm concerned, if money is speech, then flying is speech. <laughs> um, but well, I say that tongue in, I, I say I say that tongue in cheek. But because money is not. Speech, of course, it, it shouldn't isn't. be allowed to be so. Of course not. And uh, and for me to say I am as entitled to claim that what I did was free speech, I am as entitled to do that as Citizens United is. Mm-hmm. Okay, Citizens United was decided wrongly. Yes. Oh. Um, and terrible. Uh, it's only on the erroneous decision of the Supreme Court that I would say I should also be considered. My, my actions, my flight should also be considered speech. Well, that's um, interesting because, you know, as, as I've heard it said, and I think this is true, that money does not equal speech. Money is not speech. Money is a megaphone. It's a way of being heard, guaranteeing that the, your voice is heard. And if it takes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to drown out everything else, I mean, I agree with you. It's, it's nonsense. But if money is speech... You got an interesting point there. So, do you think there'll be an opportunity at the trial to to make the case? I mean, the the Supreme Court money is a volume control. 
Yes, exactly. And, hmm. and what and and the Supreme Court decided that it is a violation of the First Amendment to try and set a volume control that gives everybody an equally loud voice by setting the money limits down to the point that a billionaire cannot sh- shout over the voices of hundreds of thousands of regular people because those hundreds of thousands of people can't ante up a hundred or two hundred million dollars, which yeah. there are individuals oh, yeah. who will contribute that much in the next election. Yes. Okay. So how does the average guy get a loud enough voice to compete right. with somebody who can write a check for $200 million and his pocket change? Okay. I found a way to make the voice of the average man as loud as a billionaire. Okay. And where the Supreme Court has decided it's legal for them, the courts are, are going to work very hard to strike down how I equalized it with my voice. In- um, interesting. And you have, it, well, I was just going to say, you have a- another idea. I mean, there was that spectacle, and spectacles, you know, let's face it, we, we love spectacles. You know, the it, Western world just... We live on spectacles. I mean, you know, voting issues, boring. Supreme Court, uh, you know, oh, come on, we need some spectacles to be fun. And uh, so you have done that. And there's a new idea that I've heard from you and a lot of uh, your supporters that's a, a different spectacle and might be sort of the next phase of these actions. Tell us about that. Well. The idea, number one, I'm not, I am not crazy about going to trial, okay? I'll bet. My first, my first choice was a plea bargain where the punishment fits the crime, but that's not going to happen, okay? Yeah. Um, if the government is determined to make an example of me and do it publicly, then I fully intend to turn that around on them and make sure that them making an example of me, I turn around and make an example of, of what's going on in Washington. Uh-huh. And my interpretation of what is likely to happen is that there's likely to be a gag order issued during the trial, hmm. which means I won't be able to speak, nor will any of the other witnesses or anybody or my lawyer or anybody associated with the case. But... Okay. Um, so I'm going to be gagged, but during the four or five days of the trial, I'm going to be able to speak with my family and friends, okay? Well, I'm going to try and get, and this is just a raw number, I don't know how this is going to turn out, I'm going to try and turn out about 100 friends around the country, um, and I'm going to talk to them on a daily basis after each day of trial so that they have inside information, and if they talk to the media, that's their business, because they're not included in the, in the gag order, not being part of the trial, not being officers of the court. They can talk to whoever they want. Uh-huh. Now, I want to elevate the status of these people uh-huh. as being my official spokespersons in such a way that the media will seek them out and listen to them, okay? These are average people like me, 
I'm not looking for specialists. I'm not looking for communications people. I'm looking for regular people who will commit for a week to do something that really hasn't been tried very often or very much since the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Hole sitting. Okay. Did you ever hear of or see, see pictures of pole sitting? I did. I, I learned it from my dad. I knew that uh, all those college kids back then would uh, back then would do uh, goldfish swallowing and pole sitting. And it was uh, a it was a fad. It was 1920s. a stunt. Yep. And so is what I did by flying into Washington. It was a stunt. Okay. I'm talking about we're going to in every location in America where I can pull it off. We're going to have somebody do pole sitting, where they will go up and will do this with a, a platform rather than just a chair. Yeah. Okay. That's better. And these people will be up there for the duration of my trial as my spokespeople. And if the media wants information, they're going to have to go out there and they're going to have to talk to these people by telephone or if they want to come out with a, one of these... Um, industrial cherry pickers yeah. that they can go up and be eye-to-eye with the people, then that's fine, too. But I'm going to have local media go out to a hundred different locations scattered around the country to talk to my friends, okay? But I want my friends in each locality to be completely aware of what has happened in Congress locally. So if this is happening in Kentucky... Okay, when the press goes out to talk to the poll sitter in Kentucky, he's going to say, okay, you guys of the press need to look up these four people, and you know who they are because you interviewed them when they were running for election, you interviewed them when they were in Congress, Mm. but you haven't interviewed them since they left Congress. And I'm talking about in each locality, my representatives will name names, and they'll say, this person who retired in such and such a year, is now working on K Street. He is a lobbyist. He is making millions of dollars per year as a lobbyist. Okay? He is a traitor. He sold you out. Here in Kentucky, you voted for him. Here in Kentucky, you went door-to-door for this person. And as soon as the one-year incubation period was over, uh-huh. this person ran up to K Street for his payoff, and he is still getting paid off. It's legal. Mm. It's legal bribery. And what I want to do is out 427 members of Congress who were working as lobbyists. I want to out them publicly, and I want to out them locally. And I'm going to dare the local media, the local press, the local TV stations, to do something that's almost as much an anachronism as poll setting. I want the media to do investigative journalism. <laughs> they used to do that all the time. I know. How about my trial becomes the inspiration for hundreds of newspapers to, to go ahead and work on their own survival as a newspaper by becoming relevant politically? People will read if the newspapers start to to do something important. They've lost circulation to the mainstream media, but the mainstream media isn't reporting on this. No. So for the local media 
to compete against the national media, I will dare the local media to pick this up nationwide, but not as an individual story, but as hundreds of different stories that are relevant in the city and state in which these newspapers operate. Wow, that is fascinating. I don't know how you came up with that idea, but I can just picture it because, you know, in the news now there's different locations of the, the source of the news. So if there are hundreds of people during your trial who are up on platforms, on top of polls, the various newspapers, radio stations, TV stations, what have you, can go to their local uh, spectacle of somebody you know, sitting on a platform on top of a pole. And that person, if I have this right, will not only be the spokesperson for you and what's going on in your trial, but will also name names of corrupt uh, former members of Congress. Do I have that right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to also make the national media go to the local media in order to get the story. Ah, that's an interesting... How, how, how do you like that, CNN? <laughs> okay? Interesting. You, you, you're going to need to go to your local affiliates to get this stuff. Okay? Instead of me catering to the national media right. and, and sucking up to them to have them tell the story on a na- nationwide basis, I'm going to give this out exclusively to my local friends and they're going to be on the inside, and the networks are going to have to scramble to the locals for the inside scoop. Fantastic. And the, and the locals are going to infuse in the message the story about what is happening locally. Okay? So Here, Here's the thing. It's no surprise to anybody that there's corruption in Washington, D.C. Right. Okay? That's not news. But people don't get emotionally affected by it anymore. Right. Okay? It's like bad weather. It happens. Mm. And mm. people are used to it. Okay? But I have a theory that we need to make that corruption personal because people recognize the names of their congresspersons and their senators, and although these people dropped off the radar four years ago or six years ago when they retired, okay, the names are still known. Yeah. in the localities where they were supposed to be serving the public. And when somebody finds out, what are you talking about? Fred Smith is pulling down $2 million a year working for a law firm in K Street yeah, because he voted with that lobbyist firm and he represented the clients of that law firm all the time that he was in Congress. I mean, I, I tell you, there's another tradition that I'd like to see come come out of this, and that's tar and feathers. Yeah. <laughs> that was painful, actually, back then. Tarring and feathering, I believe, it was like in the, uh, may have come out of the 17th century, I know it was in the 18th century. Tell us about that, Doug Hughes. <laughs> tar and feathers was before my time, too. Oh, yeah. I'm old, but I'm not that old. Hey, I'm a little older. Go um, ahead. The, uh, but the, the tradition of tarring and feathering a scoundrel yes. um, was <laughs> what it sounds like, they would take hot, hot tar and smear it on, on the guy's uh, body, yes. and then they would take chicken feathers and put that onto the hot tar, and they'd run the guy out of town, but they would have run him out of town, and it would take weeks or months for him to be able to pick the hot tar off of his skin. Yes. Um, so he would, ha- he would effectively be identified 
by what he was wearing, the tar and feathers, mm. that he was a, a scoundrel who had been run out of town. Mm. Um, I think we can... I don't think we can bring up tarring and feathering anybody legally, but I think the media can do it much more effectively than tar and feathers did in the 1800s. We can tar and feather people who are making huge piles of money to where they won't be able to be seen in public with their mother. Yeah. <laughs> if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive... We have. Uh, well, this is this is how we're going to do it. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're going to have to to raise an army of people who insist that our government erect a wall of separation between money and government, and that doesn't make for a liberal government, and it doesn't make a, a conservative government, but it makes a government who has to serve the people instead of serving the lobbyists or the clients of the lobbyists who are currently holding everybody in Congress that, you know... They own them. They, to give you an idea, it is very close to 50% of the Congress, after they retire and after they do the one-year incubation period, 50% of our Congress is going to work as registered lobbyists. Wow. That That's is, a scary number. Yeah, there there really is, and and people know that you know our that this government uh, is supposed to be government of by and for the people. Oh, what a quaint idea that is! Actual democracy, you know, that's that's so silly. We know that uh, you know it's a government of by and for the plutocrats, the powerful special interests. But in all seriousness, doing something about that, you know, embarrassing them pointing out who they are. So you must have a research team finding out about these, what, 427 people that you're going to... Yeah, just, and by the way, this is an individual research that I did. If you go to opensecrets.org, ah. that's one place where you can go to find the information out. And uh, there are a, a number of other reliable, nonpartisan groups that, that are collecting this information. For the moment, it is public public information, okay? Right. But this is something that the noose is tightening on on getting this information, okay? More and more, we're entering an era of dark money. Yes. It used to be that, that anybody and everybody who contributed to the candidates had to disclose. Well, more and more, this buying your own politician is something that can be done in secret, and they're building more and more loopholes into contributing money so that we're not going to be able to figure out who owns who. Hmm. Um, there, there is a, a time window that we're fighting in terms of fixing this problem, because if we don't fix it fairly soon, we may not be able to reclaim our democracy. Well, what do you mean? Tell us about that, that uh, time window that's closing. Well, if what's happening is they're opening up more and more areas where people can anonymously contribute what is coming up to be closer and closer to unlimited amounts of money. Okay? Right now, yeah. you can go out and uh, on um, Open Secrets and some of these other places, you can do the research on each candidate. You can see what percentage of money came from which right. industries, 
you can see how much of the money was collected individually versus how much of it is PAC money. You can see what PACs contributed, and then you can go and look up the background information on the PAC. So for the, for the purpose of investigating who is contributing money to who, that information is there, and that's an embarrassment to the candidates, and it's a threat to the people who were giving money. So more and more, they're changing the people in oh, Congress yeah. are rewriting the laws. Yes, um, and they're and there's these super PACs that that are you know they're not directly on behalf of a candidate, you know, wink, wink. So that it, it protects the members of Congress even more. It gives them, you know, oh, it's not money to my campaign. No, no, they're spending in an educational effort on their own. Very clever stuff. And you're right. I think uh, it's getting worse before it gets better. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Doug Hughes, former mailman uh, and uh, gyrocopter pilot activist. Uh, I don't know how to identify you, but uh, we've heard from him when he piloted his gyrocopter April 15th uh, onto the Capitol grounds to make the point that uh, Congress is corrupt and to deliver the message to them. And that that action has started. That was the uh, ignition of the action that day, and there's still a lot more to come. Uh, it, it, do you think that is it possible that Americans who follow the, the poll sitting, the follow-up actions, the pointing out, that Americans may actually start to compare any alleged harm you may have done with the harm caused by members of Congress? Is, is that a good uh, uh, picture to paint, that people will hopefully get that? That women, who's doing the real harm here? Is it this guy who, you know, broke uh, security? And, and again, the, the idea that I'm talking about here, the, the poll sitting, is an idea that's actually just a couple of days old. But one of the things huh. you're bringing up, somebody suggested, and that is doing... Whether it's an attachment that we put onto email or whether it's something we physically print up, um, pictures of members of Congress with their faces behind bars, okay? Um, because that's where somebody should be who commits treason. And that's what I call what they're doing. Nobody who is working for K Street, nobody who, who is working as a lobbyist for large sums of money, can hold his head up as being a public servant, okay? No, they're not. Um, I, you know, anybody with any integrity who goes on to doing something after public service, anybody with integrity would go to great lengths to make sure there's nothing that looks improper. And these people are grabbing the big piles of money, and they think it's, Right, because it's legal, and it's legal only because they write the laws. That's true. But they, they should be ashamed, and, it's, and it should be something that we start to treat as illegal, as should be illegal. In our dealings with, with these former congressmen and senators, we should be on, weighing on them really hard with the image of their face behind bars. Yeah, one has to wonder. Sometimes people vote. I mean, uh, I know uh, 
just recently with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, all the members of Congress heard from right, left, everybody, all their constituents, virtually all of them, were united in opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which really, really assaults our democracy. It's a serious, very serious assault on our democracy. It gives uh, supranational corporations power, more sovereign power over state law or local law or any law at all. And yet, even though members of Congress, House and Senate, were flooded with calls and letters in opposition to it, most of them voted for it. Now, why is that? I would like I, to. I, I wish I, I wish I knew where I stood on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but unfortunately, the thing was negotiated in and secret. held in secret. Yes, and and my my reaction on on Trans-Pacific Partnership is that I don't understand why I'm not allowed to know exactly the specific provisions of something of such critical importance. Right, but they do want me to either support it or oppose it. But I, I have to make that decision with blinders on. And uh, there's money involved. There's got to be tremendous amounts of money involved. That's the point I was starting to get to. Is and that, that and and that point alone, the, the, combined with the fact that we're not allowed to know what's in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but we can, if we do a little bit of investigation, find out that hundreds of millions of dollars have been contributed. Yes. To, to lobbyists for this, that any rational person is going to come to the conclusion, this doesn't look good for me. Okay, I, I, and I will tell you, I still don't know what's in the, right. the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but I happen to have grave misgivings that there's anything in it that's going to benefit me, <laughs> based on who's, who's giving money and the manner in which I haven't been allowed to examine the details. And that's what we're talking about here is democracy. We're trying, we, a lot of people, are trying to keep democracy alive. And there's various different ways of doing it. And, and you're having these spectacular actions that will draw attention to it. And I wonder, again, playing a bit of devil's advocate here, are you worried that such spectacular action, that by such action the effect might be, to, to, to remind people and verify a widespread spread sense of, of powerlessness, you know, in that the normal channels are ineffective. I don't actually think the normal channels are ineffective, but we need to raise the, uh, the voice. The voice has to be raised. You know, people, I think most, many people have given up. They feel like they have no power. But there is a way to have power through street actions, a little bit of this spectacle. Not everybody has to do that. But do you think it's possible you might be discouraging people who aren't about to fly gyrocopters or sit on on flagpoles, reminding them, could it be reinforcing the message that there's nothing they can do? Or is this saying, hey, you can be creative? What's your uh, response to that concern that some people may have? Well, I'm a whole lot of where I'm coming from is that I am very cynical about the mainstream media. Well, and I'm course. talking about the networks. Oh, yeah, of in, course. In particular. Yeah. You have to recognize that in the next election, we're talking about six, seven billion dollars will get spent in the election. <laughs> yes. Okay? And the candidates are not going to stick this money in their pockets. 
as far as six or seven million. This, this six or seven billion is going to be collected and it's going to be spent. Okay, but who gets that money? The mainstream media. Oh, bingo! Yes, <laughs> I. I mean, we're talking about in the most conservative way. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars will go to each of the networks: CNN, Fox, CBS, MSNBC, all these companies, these corporations, because that's that's what they are. They are businesses, and they make money. And they're looking at the huge amounts of political advertising revenue. And the bean counters have seen that this ranks up there as corruption. Money in politics ranks up there as a number one or number two issue. And yet it is underreported, unreported. And when I made my flight, the, the networks made this all about security. Right. And they didn't want to talk, and they very successfully did not talk right. about why I made the flight. But the message is getting out anyway about why I made the flight. And I'm looking for ways, which is why I'm going to the local media, to the print media, to your local newspaper. I'm going to them rather than CNN, CBS, or Fox News. I'll talk to those people. But my state is in the local media to get the, the message out. And I'm looking for people to recognize that they can watch whatever network they want to, but they need to cynically be aware they're not going to get the story there. So they have got to find alternate ways of getting the straight word about what's, what's going on. Now, right now, I am working primarily uh, through Facebook, which isn't what I intended to do. But there's a, a Facebook group that my wife kept saying to me, Doug, Doug, you got to come look at this. Doug, you got to read this. And it's, it's a Facebook group called Free Doug Hughes. And when my wife was telling me about it, I said, oh, that's cute. That's funny. Um, and I was thinking there was a dozen or maybe a couple of dozen people, some of them my personal friends from work who had started it. I went out and looked at it. This, there's over 2,000 members in this Facebook group. And I went, you got to be kidding me, okay? Well, I'm using that as my forum of choice because I've got 2,000 people who are, are tuned in and specifically interested, and I'd like to see that number of people on that group grow a whole lot. But I've told, I promised them, I said, whatever's coming out, you, you guys can be ahead of the curve because I'm going to print it here first. You guys will hear it straight from me, and you'll hear it first. Um, and, and certainly the local media, I mean, they're struggling. Newspapers are dying these days. They're all being taken over as much as they can by the big boys. But they're going to love this kind of thing, because if they have an exclusive on it, it's going to be great. Their advertisers will like it, and it would be nice to serve uh, the, the local press as well. They're going to jump right on it. If there's local people doing this flagpole thing, uh, sitting on platforms uh, during the trial and pointing out uh, the corrupt members of Congress. Uh, that'll be their local story, and they'll like it. You know, I, th I think it was Tip O'Neill. I may be wrong, but I think it was Tip O'Neill who said, all politics is local. And, of course, it is. And, and your call for support in these new actions 
you cite that major master organizer, Saul Alinsky, uh, someone who's somewhat forgotten these days. Tell us what he taught and how it factors in today. Well, I I didn't read Saul Alinsky up until a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I read somewhere that Rush Limbaugh hates the guy with a passion. Perfect. And I figured anybody that Rush Limbaugh hates, I ought to read. Um, and Saul Alinsky wrote a book in the seventies. He's been he's been dead whatever it is thirty oh, or forty years. Yeah, okay. Um, but he wrote a, a book called Rules for Radicals. Yes. Pretty much the Bible for how do you organize something so that it's effective in getting the change you want, okay? And Saul Alinsky identified in the opening chapter the purpose of him writing the book and the instructions that he's trying to give people in this book is how to return power from the haves and give it to the have-nots, okay? How do you return power to the people at the at the grassroots level. Right. Okay. He said there is a natural gravitation of authority from from the bottom. They take it away from people at the bottom yeah. and more and more if it's unchecked, it it will go up to the elite. That's right. And if you talk to people who are conservatives, Tea Party conservatives, they are also upset about yes. the elites yes. who have power that oftentimes unelected power uh-huh. that they shouldn't have. It's the same concern on the left and on the right. Absolutely. That what we want isn't being represented. And the, and both sides happen to be correct. Absolutely. It, it, the, the, the thing is, the book that Saul Alinsky wrote, okay, is the playbook for how to reverse that, how to, how to ship the authority, government authority, from the top, from non-elected elites, okay, from the bureaucrats, how do you ship that power back down so that it's in the hands of the voter? Wow, what a concept, actually having democracy. Imagine that. How radical can that be? Well, you're kind of... I, I, I have been misquoted, that, but th- this is the correct quote, okay? My stunt was 30% Saul Alinsky, 30% T.T. Barnum, and... Uh, Thirty percent evil can evil. <laughs> well, and it makes me think of one of my favorites in history, Emma Goldman, who said, "If I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution." Humor and fun has to be part of it, and a lot of people have known that through the years. And uh, Americans are often often attracted to that. So you're an average Joe doing stunts like this. Do you think this can inspire other? Average Joe's into doing this, and we got just a couple minutes left. I want to make sure to get in any kind of website that people should check out. Okay. As far as I, I, I don't, I don't want anybody to get hurt. I right. don't want anybody to take risks that they shouldn't take. Um, and I am absolutely opposed to any anything that's violent. I'm opposed to any movement that's going to do property damage. Right. Okay. But within the limits of nobody gets hurt and there is no property damage, then I'm relatively open to civil disobedience if you're willing to do the time for it. And any actions that you take have got to be, by design, intended to put 
attention on the problem and the solution, not just stunts to get attention to yourself. Right. And websites you can suggest people check out. I, I tell you, on Facebook, there is a group called Free Dog Hughes. That's a great place to go for information. Mm-hmm. I am on the verge of being unemployed and unemployable yeah. because of the coming trial. I'm, I'm kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, but the U.S. Postal Service has announced they are terminating their relationship with me. Yeah, well. So there is a GoFundMe that's Doug Hughes Freedom Flight, okay? And uh, all of that money goes to my wife. She's very carefully making sure that I can't have it. But the purpose of that GoFundMe is if I do go to jail, and I don't know for how long I need for my family to be able to survive. So we're squirreling away that money in the eventuality that I am am convicted because they are really ticked, and they are really not going to let me put on a defense. So I'm not sure. I'm not saying they're going to get away with it, but they're trying to railroad me. Well, stay tuned, folks. Doug Hughes, brave pilot, male person, and citizen. You know, we are taking action. I'm a citizen just like everybody else. Absolutely. A hero is a sandwich, man. (laughs) All right. It's about citizen empowerment. Thank you so much. Very, very interesting. And uh, we'll be following you. And uh, I think a lot of uh, actions are going to ripple out from what you have uh, you've done. Doug Hughes, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on so much. Thank you, Doug Hughes, for keeping us alive, keeping democracy alive. Thank you. Flying High, Country Joe and the Fish. Oh. 